Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut. They're over there next to the virtual coffee. We've got analysis on stories today from NVIDIA, new Juniper Silicon, encrypted traffic analysis, financial results, and some listener FU. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. To find out what's next in SASE, sign up to watch Palo Alto Networks. SASE Converge 2021. It's an on-demand webinar where you hear from leading voices in networking and security. Get details on the impact of SASE technology and more. It's all at sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. Stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored TechBytes conversation on network security at scale. That is, in a cloud environment, how can you build security capabilities and features into the network while also keeping up with security policies, operations, compliance, and more? Our sponsor for that conversation is Aviatrix. They provide multi-cloud networking software for public clouds. And last but not least, if you like Network Break, check out our newest podcast, Heavy Strategy, with Greg Farrow and Jonah Till-Johnson from Nemertes Research. Yeah, that's our show where we try and just talk about the questions, not so much the answers, but just talk around a topic and ideas and things. Um, the, the idea is, is that if you're listening to heavy strategy, you might be able to take some of those ideas into your own situation. Are they right? Are they wrong? Well, the answer is, as always, it depends, trademark. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, if you could trademark, so, it depends, you'd be rich. Yeah, that'd be right. Um, but it's sort of, it's just, a, it's just a show where we take a topic and try and talk around it. And we try and take an adversarial approach. That is, Jonah will take one side and I'll take another and we disagree politely, respectfully, but hopefully there's something in there that helps you challenge the way you think about your IT or challenge the way you think about your work or challenge the way that things are. And so that when you get faced with those issues in your job, you're all better prepared. That's kind of, that's hopeful, but you know, maybe that's what, maybe that's what you'll get out of it. Yeah. So you have to go sign up for it at heavy strategy. Just go to packetpersons.net and uh, subscribe yeah. to heavy strategy. It's not part of our combined feed. So if you're not seeing it, the reason is because it's a completely separate feed subscribe to it separately please for there and for reasons for reasons yes all right uh we got uh some fu some follow-up from some listeners on some stories we covered recently uh last week we had talked about cisco's ie 9300 switch uh it's a new switch for the industrial market and this listener wrote in to say it sounded to him like we were positioning cisco as new to the industrial market uh, and he says that's not the case they've been in industrial networking for at least a decade or more uh, but his position is that this switch, maybe they are pivoting more towards selling toward traditional enterprise IT buyers as opposed to the folks yeah. running SCADA gear. Yeah, and that I thought that was the angle that I came across with on the day is to say that Cisco's pitching this as a Cisco product and it's an industrial product. So it's basically a repackaging of existing switches. And uh, I think I actually said at the time, this is very useful to enterprises because now they can snap it into the networking technology they've got. So if you're running... Cisco campus, you know, whatever SD campus type tooling or whatever software defined you're using, these switches would in principle be able to operate on the same line. So you think like Cisco, you operate Cisco and then the enterprise IT can cut to operate the factory network. And as uh, this person points out, um, he was highlighting that Cisco has been making these switches, but rebadging them to Rockwell and Johnson Controls and other companies. And now they're starting to put their own brand on them and say, you can buy them directly for us. Um, and you maybe, you know, it's a bit like Cisco. Remember when Ericsson and Cisco did a deal and Ericsson was going to sell all their stuff. Right. And, right. and all that happened is Cisco took all of Ericsson's customers and their results <laughs> fell by 20, 10 to 15%. Ericsson um, let the wolf in the door. They did. And it did. So I think Rockwell might've, might be finding something a little bit similar. Cisco is very good at that particular businessman. Of course we're a partner, but we're also competing with you. <laughs> And the answer is whichever one's bringing us the most money is the one that we're doing. Oh, you're not bringing me enough money anymore. Therefore, I'm going to go direct sort of thing. 
uh, which is something Cisco has done fairly consistently over three decades. Um, I think it's, as this person points out, the increased importance of industrial networking. The IT team is now involved and because they have more experience in running networks, they're starting to ask more of the industrial companies, the industrial automation companies, to put networks together that are actually well-designed and fit for purpose instead of the usual sort of, it's connected, it's working, let's get out of here. You know? <laughs> right, is, and if you can get more unified operational control, m- monitoring, management, that kind of thing for both systems, I think you could make an argument for why that makes more sense than having two silos. Yes, I think so. And more importantly, you can use the same tool chains on all of them right. and the same skill set. So your enterprise IT can now start to work on the factory networks and so forth instead of having to outsource the networking to a third party who may you know, have a lot of skills at terminating cables. They might be electricians that put switches on, stuns all switches, which is something I've seen. Um, having professionals running the network would, in theory, produce a better network and certainly a more unified and promote the security. So when you want to secure the factory, all these industrial networks, you know, PL SCADA networks, having a unified security strategy, I think is absolutely the key thing. Yeah. So the takeaway here is that um, Cisco has been in the industrial space for quite some time. Maybe what's new is how they're positioning their switches to a different buyer. Yeah. And I mustn't have explained myself very well, for which I apologize. That was certainly the why I was discussing it. And I thought I said at the time, like, this is Cisco continuing with their industrial automation strategy. And I was just flagging it in case people didn't know about it. I'm really not, wasn't news as such. No. Uh, second FU, uh, also from last week, talking about uh, 5G buffer zones around certain U.S. airports. Uh, we were talking about uh, some different regulators in the U.S., the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. I think, Greg, you may have referred to the FTC, which is the Federal Trade Communication, when you should have been referring to the FCC, FCC. the Federal Communications yes. Communication. <laughs> yes, and you are quite correct. I think even during the episode, when I went back to listen to it, I flipped between the FTC and the FCC all the time. Um, and of course, if you've listened to Network Break for a while, we do tend to highlight some of the political issues that have bearing on your technology situation. So that is politics might decide what vendor you're allowed to choose or what products, you know, the security level of products. And so often I, uh, yes, I think I got confused. The answer is here, uh, the 5G buffer zones was an FCC, and but it was also the airport commission which had to ha- approve the use of these things. And I'm not going to go into it, but if you want to go and search up the whole 5G debacle, it was, um, to me, at the end of the day, it seems like when you choose small government, which the US, the previous US administration did, it tried to wind back and say, just let the market sort it out. Let's go for small government. There's always a possibility that small government is just lazy government, where the government departments just stand back and say, well, that's not my problem. I won't get involved. And this has a bit of that in it. It feels like something fell into the gaps because all of the government departments that regulate air travel, they had to validate the altimeters at certain frequencies. And the FC, the uh, FCC said it's not our problem. The airports people said it's not our problem. And there's another one, the NTSA, which is the National Transport and Safety Council, NTSC. And they said, well, it's got to be one of you guys' problems because if you don't, <laughs> we're going to ground the entire fleet. And then the insurance companies popped up and said, if these things aren't valid, for flight, they're not safe. So we're not going to insure you. And so then it all, so it really felt like if you choose small government, sometimes you get lazy government. And that's a bit of a challenge. Might have been the the issue here. Yeah. The other thing to keep in mind is that Greg is in the UK. So uh, keeping track of all the three letter acronyms for US agencies can be a chore. I know I would 
<laughs> if I had to be <laughs> on top of all the UK acronyms, it would be hard for me. So. Well, they're all the same too. I'm a bit, I'm a bit dyslexic in that sense, remembering <laughs> acronyms. I'm really good with the first two letters, but after that, it starts to fade off, fail off pretty quickly. <laughs> all right. Well, we appreciate the follow-up. One more to go. Uh, this is regarding some comments around enterprises returning to fiber channel. Uh, this listener mentions that he was part of a project to deploy uh, a software-defined data center with vSAN. Uh, the couldn't get the information he needed and switches started melting down and they eventually just went back to fiber channel and everybody's happy. Yeah, this is a very common story I hear is people try to go to a software defined storage system and to set it up over a network. All that, And it's a fairly consistent story that the software defined storage vendors don't talk about networking or don't lay out any requirements or don't have any standards. And a lot of time, tech, uh, enterprise companies, enterprise IT just switches back to fiber channel because a separate network. It's lossless. Sure, it's expensive, but at least it works and nobody's going to whine at me. Mm -hmm. But running software-defined storage on top of Fiber Channel is a bit not really taking advantage of the value. So, but yeah, Fiber Channel, growing business. It's still making buku profits for Broadcom and Cisco. They have huge products. They keep making announcements. I don't bring them onto the show because they're not you know, there's nothing too exciting about a new fiber channel switch, really. It's more of the same. Um, but, you know, it's there's only what two the vendors. Last one was, is what you get with yeah. fiber channel. Yeah. And there's only two vendors and they are making wads of cash out of it because it's just recycling the same old technology over and over. All right. Well, as always, thank you for the FU, the follow-up. If you've got comments, critiques, questions, whatever, you can hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU. We do love to hear from you and we do love you keeping us honest. All right, let's dive into the news. Uh, Chipmaker NVIDIA's $40 billion bid to acquire ARM semiconductors is apparently on the rocks. This is according to a story in Bloomberg. The news outlet cites insiders who say the regulatory hurdles in the U.S. and China are likely to scuttle the deal, including a U.S. lawsuit by the Federal Trade Commission to block the takeover. The EU and U.K. government uh, agencies also get to weigh in, so there's a lot uh, going on here. There's a lot going on. I think the the, the U.S. government moves, as they say, the, the Federal Trade Commission is moving not so much to block the take the takeover, they're actually announcing an investigation, which is we're not going to rubber stamp it. Uh, but the real issue here is that Arm is a U.K. company and the U.K. government here absolutely gets to decide if they will permit the sale in the national interest. Mm -hmm. uh, the UK, of course, politically uh, with the Brexit, the move to Brexit, wants to encourage its local industries. It was never likely to let harm go um, after Brexit happened because they needed here to create jobs and to keep money in the country. Uh, and in the meantime, the EU has flagged that they're reluctant to sell. China has flip-flopped between yes and no. Um, although the arm operation in China is 51% open by owned by China. So in a weird sort of a way, if they if the Chinese government says no, there's a bunch of other things that could happen there. And then finally, the EU regulator has also signaled that it wants to. It's also, you know, we talk about the politics issues. This is a sign that governments are willing to intervene in the technology market where before they've been much more willing, let it, you know, hands off and let it happen. Um, so there's that backdrop of politics taking a focus on technology. But I also think, Drew, the market's changed a lot since September 2020 when this was originally announced. So we're 18 months into this, and the last 18 months I think has really changed, and this deal might not be uh, I think NVIDIA still wants it, but I think nobody else sort of does. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I can see, you know, sort of the regulatory market concerns because ARM processors are widely used across a, a variety of industries, uh, not just computing. It's also in manufacturing, automotive, mm. mobile, et cetera. Um, and then on the competitive front, 
you know, NVIDIA is making DPUs that use ARM, but so are NVIDIA competitors making DPUs using ARM, including Intel, Marvell, Pensando. So having NVIDIA in charge of ARM licensing <laughs> when their competitors <laughs> want to get a piece of it, I, if I were a regular, I'd be like, that's problematic for me. Well, I think also because uh, chips have become extremely part of scene as part of the national interest, like a strategic national interest. That's that's the that's the national, mm. the government sort of strategic interest aspect. Yes, you're seeing a lot of interest mm. here in the U.S. about wanting to get more chip fabrication here in the U.S. and in the U.K. Arm being sort of one of the technological yeah, champions for the right. country. Yeah, yeah. If you have Arm in the U.K., in theory, having a fab in the U.K. is better. Mm -hmm. uh, whether that actually happens or not, we could, you know, yeah. who knows? <laughs> we'll see. Uh, but that's kind of the argument I think that would would float at some point in time um, would be, and I think, the, and I think that NVIDIA's competitors would be somewhat concerned because the market has much changed. Obviously, the access to manufacturing capacity has changed or transitioned. And I think what Apple's shown is that if you can take the ARM, combine it with a GPU, combine it with your own, uh, you know, all the other silicon, then unified technology strategies win. And that's what Apple's M1 chipset, which they use now for both desktop and smartphone, really turns on its head the idea that, you know, you go to Intel because they're an expert in CPU. Arm has sort of changed the number to say suitably large companies can invest suitably amounts of money to become their own chipset designers and leverage you know, arms technology to get where they want to be. And we're right. seeing companies do, you know, AWS, of course, has become an arm licensee and talks uh, in the recent, its recent conference talking a lot about their arm servers and how cheap they are to run and how cheap their instances based on those arm CPUs will be. Uh, we're seeing there. And I think for NVIDIA, well, there's a fundamental change here, right? So CPUs are, are important, but what we're increasingly moving to is this CPU, GPU, DPU, TPU, so it's the CPU is not as important as it used to be. It's part of the whole ecosystem. Of course, NVIDIA has right. got the graphics processing. It's got an AI, so it's got the AI chipsets so or the, the TPUs, TensorFlow processing chips that it wants to put out there. It bought Mellanox to get the smart NICs or the DPUs that it needs. Yep. And getting the ARM part of that and then providing a high-speed internet interconnect between all of them would give them a competitive advantage. So they would still sell ARM directly and, you know, license technology, but they would also be able to specify um, their own interconnect technology and tightly bind it into the CPU to get a competitive advantage in the same way that Intel does. So Intel manufactures DRAM as well as CPUs, although it's now sold the fab of all the DRAM stuff. But for years, it's been pushing its interconnects between the CPU and the DRAM, and that's been a competitive advantage for the x86 platform because Intel's been able to drive those standards in directions that they want and to achieve a position of market control or market dominance. Um, and I think that this is what NVIDIA wants, and I think NVIDIA's competitors are now going, I don't think we want to see that. Yeah, we don't want but, you to have that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this, of course, is also in the larger context of the shift away from the single ASIC this is hard to explain, but I'll try and do this in a few sentences so it's not take up too much of your time. Once upon a time, an ASIC was often a very large piece of silicon, you know, uh, say 15 millimeters by 15 millimeters or even more. And what happens there is if you want to redesign the, the ASIC, you have to redesign the whole ASIC because you're designing something right down at sort of the atomic layer. And what we're seeing now is that the vendors to try and uh, solve the supply chain problem and to solve the manufacturing issues is break the chip up into pieces. And this is certainly true of the M1 chipset to a large, to some extent. And they'll make the design, but they'll connect the 
um, the chips pieces together. So in networking in particular, what you're seeing is a switching asset gets produced as one piece of silicon, but the HBM or the high bandwidth memory, which allows a high-speed router to have 2 million or 5 million routes sitting in RAM, mm -hmm. the HBM is a separate chip that's then bonded onto the same package and then connected via a high-speed internet. And then we're also seeing SIRDES chips and so forth. So you don't need to iterate the SIRDES. Once you build a 400 gig SIRDES, you don't need to keep iterating it every time. Maybe you want to respin the ASIC to get faster performance and lower latency or a, a deeper pipeline. But you also don't want to have to respin the HBM, the high bandwidth memory, or the SIRDES module and change the whole thing. So they're moving to this chiplet model. And this is why ARM would get an advantage is if it could build the chiplet structure with its CPU, GPU, DPU all on a single die, they would then be able to freeze out the competitors while being open. And how many times have we seen companies say, yes, we're open and free, yes, yes, but actually control the market? Right, yes, many times. Mm. All right, so just to wrap that up, uh, the NVIDIA ARM deal is still officially on the table, hasn't been uh, killed yet, but uh, the outlook does not look good if we look at the Magic 8 ball. Mm. Yes, uh, SoftBank, which owns the company today, uh, they acquired the company under a different government and a different situation and a different political environment, will probably look to float the company. It wants the cash. It believes that now is the time to sell ARM. Uh, and it's also believed that SoftBank is struggling a bit for cash yes. and wants to continue to do some stuff. So uh, even if the company uh, doesn't sell directly to NVIDIA, and NVIDIA would have to walk away from a couple of billion dollars, by the way, there is a substantial payment fee, break fee in the contract. Ouch. Um, Mm. They took the bet that all those governments would line up and give them what they wanted. That was so, a terrible bet. But then most likely SoftBank will then float the company. And so we'll see, it'll be interesting to see what happens after that. All right. Sticking with Silicon, Juniper's announced new versions of its custom ASIC platforms. That's the Trio 6 and Juniper Express 5. Those are the newest versions. The Trio 6 is going to find homes in new MX routers. Juniper's positioning for the service provider Edge. New hardware includes a Trio 6-based line card offering 9.6 terabits per second per slot. The Express 5, that offers 28.8 terabits throughput, will show up in PTX routers. Uh, so more performance, more of everything, Drew, really, isn't it? Always more. <laughs> really, we always want more. Always more. Uh, so this is really uh, the Trio chipset, of course, is Juniper's uh, crown jewels and has been for the last two or three decades uh, inside of its high-end routers, and it's been the one thing, and they haven't given up on it. Um, so they're continuing to bring it through. They've iterated from, you know, to six for version six in this one. Uh, in this case, the... Uh, ASIC does up to 9.6 terabits per slot in a chassis-based router. Uh -huh. I imagine that what they're doing is putting multiple of those chipsets. I haven't actually seen the spec sheet on this trio. They didn't publish it, did they? I haven't they seen one yet. just gave us a yeah. briefing with some data, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, and when we had that briefing, we were asking about, you know, we're hearing a lot about service providers wanting to move to Whitebox and Merchant Silicon, and Juniper's making the argument that there are specialized use cases where you want specialized silicon, so at a multi-service service provider edge where you're having to support a variety of different services, you know, mobile, broadband, uh, plus security features, you want uh, a specialized chip for that as opposed to just off-the-shelf merchant silicon. And same thing for, you know, sort of that core where just you want a chip designed for as much throughput as you can get, and that's the uh, Express 5. Yeah, I suspect that there are a lot of companies out there still thinking about their networks, especially service provider customers or mm -hmm. large customers. Mm -hmm. Uh, sort of like in the same way as they did 10 years ago, and they're still terminating point-to-point -point circuits instead of multi-point so, or thinking of packets. They still think about IP traveling over Ethernet or try IP traveling over some segment routing path that they define and they control and they can sell to customers for extra value. Mm -hmm. And I think that market is declining over time. We know that 
And, you know, packet networks were designed to work over unreliable networks. That's the whole principle. Yes, of, right? They the don't point. need to be HA. <laughs> they don't need to be redundant and, you know, all that sort of stuff. They don't need custom. And the success of all the applications over the top to just use whatever bandwidth's available sort of is a highlight. Now, there are certainly use cases, but um, so I think, you know, these types of technologies are for a certain type of customer who have a certain product, but they're not the general use case that they used to be. I think this is much more of a specialist uh, telco, high bandwidth, want to support legacy services, but it's sort of, you know, not really looking forward to the future, which is high-speed public networks is really where the future is. Yeah, clearly I think Juniper is saying this is for specialized markets, specialized use cases, which also means they can charge specialized pricing as opposed to trying to compete mm. uh, specifically against, you know, a Broadcom in the general market. These are going to be, you know, your... your um, your sports race cars as opposed to your sedan. Yeah, scale. They operate at scale. You know, how many people need, uh, you know, several hundred, you know, 400 gig or, you know, 20, 40, 60, 80, 120, 400 gig ports in a chassis. Right. And with a high grain control and a high feet, high quality feature set attached to it. I think that's a much, that's a different, that's a certainly a big enough market to justify making the silicon. And I also think at this particular point in time, maybe it's better from supplier diversity point of view to have this going out. And, you know, this would have argument. all been decided years ago, Drew. It's not like it happened last week. We're going to get out, you know. Yeah, yeah. So right, uh, and this probably doesn't use cutting edge silicon. I think they t- said nine nanometer. Did they say ten nanometer? I think the Trio Six was seven nanometer actually coming yeah. out of TSMC. So it's not like it's on the next generation. The part, the 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 access to silicon manufacturer is down at the five four three nanometer. That's right. where the hard to get supply chain is. Right, and the chips that are back in the older revs are much easier to get capacity, is what I've been told. So. And I remember in the briefing, and I think also in some of their press materials, they are um, going harder against Cisco with its Silicon One platform uh, as opposed mm. to Broadcom with these. Yeah, I, I feel that the these and those markets, you can certainly convince just a handful of people that your super magic gearbox with a, a high performance engine has actually got value. Yeah, and you know if you can make the point that this has, you know, putting a chromed gear stick in your in your networking data is probably better than an unchromed one. Well, maybe that's, you know, my views on it. Well, links in the show (laughs) notes if you want to go check out the Chrome. All right, we'll move on. Live Action, they make network management and monitoring equipment. They've announced a new network detection and response offering for encrypted traffic analysis. It's called Threat INV. The product analyzes packet traits and behavior to spot potentially malicious actions and anomalies uh, so that security teams can get some visibility into traffic even when security tools can't examine the actual payloads. The way it works is that you have software probes in your network that collect packet metadata and send it to a SaaS service for analysis via machine learning. Yeah, so this is the network. All network companies are now security companies um, type yep. of product set. Yep. Uh, you take your networking product and then you throw a threat engine on the side of it and then you become a network detection and response or an NDR company, which gets nice multiples on the share market and is also what customers are looking for. So I think this is fine. Um, Live Action's always been a unique company with the way their software works and their web development and adding a threat detection as, to their system. They've got the data. Uh, why not, I suppose? Yeah, I believe they acquired an NDR company a year or two mm-hmm. ago, and so they're adding this, you know, encrypted uh, packet analysis capability. Yeah, which is good because they're doing it in house. You know, put a ring on it. Yep. Type debate. Uh, in this case, they're not just taking a, th- a threat feed from a third party. You know, you can buy threat intelligence feeds and just feed them into your product. What they've actually done here is bought a whole threat intelligence company and then incorporated, which I'm much more in favor of. Um, you know, as I said before, you know, my general view is that if you don't actually want to own it, you just want a third party at the customer 
generally tends to end up suffering at the end of the day when something goes wrong down the pipe. Whereas if the vendor owns more of the of the product bundle, generally it works out better. Not always, just generally. Yes. Uh, so the service is doing things looking for traits like the sequence of packet length over time, ratio of inbound to outbound packets, entropy of data, byte distribution, and other traits. Uh, Live Action says using these traits uh, and its ML engine, it can detect things like phishing attacks, keystroke loggers, and other indications of malicious behavior. But it's not like supposed to be your only standalone security product. You're supposed to use it in conjunction with uh, other SOC tools like Seams and threat intelligence feeds and so on. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. They've launched the industry's first conference dedicated to SASE or Secure Access Service Edge, SASE Converge 2021. You can see an on-demand version of the event. You'll hear from industry veterans, including Nir Zook. He's the founder of Palo Alto Networks. And Neil McDonald, he is Gartner's VP and Distinguished Analyst. And the godfather of SDN, Martin Cazzato. Uh, you'll know him as an early pioneer in the development of OpenFlow. They're all speaking about SASE. And you can also see Palo Alto's new Prisma Access 2.2 capabilities in action. You can get details on the impact of SASE technologies that they've made for organizations today and learn about forthcoming innovations. Go to sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com to register and watch at your leisure. This is sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. You can register and see the event. Back to the news and back to Juniper. They announced Q4 and full year financial results for the quarter. The company had revenues of $1.3 billion, up 6% year over year, and net income of $132 million. Uh, for the year, revenue was $4.7 billion, with net income of $252 million, down 2% year over year. Yeah, and Juniper's had a great turnaround here. Uh, analysts, I've noticed that a number of analysts in the industry have suddenly started recommending Juniper stock, saying that the stock is now undervalued. Of course, the stock has fallen a bit over the last, say, three years, two or three years, mm -hmm. and definitely was out of favour. But the acquisition following Mist and the moves that they've made in the last year or two have analysts very excited about the stock. So we now find um, that Juniper is being is a very popular amongst analysts. And in this case, they've actually announced that orders grew by more than 50% year over year for a third consecutive quarter our ending backlog increased to a record level of more than 1.8 billion. So Juniper is now sitting on orders of 1.8 billion, according to Rami Rahim. Um, and they were actually able to increase uh, their dividend by 5%. That is not normal in tech, like increasing dividends, like paying mm -hmm, right. shareholders money. It's <laughs> right. like, it sounds almost, almost like Cisco. Uh, yes. Yeah, so Cisco is, yeah. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Um, but it is a surprise dividend. So uh, Juniper stock did actually pop substantially, popped by 4.8% uh, after hours after they said that they had healthy demand across all verticals. But they also said, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, that their supply chain was under control. Yeah, well, they did and uh, also quoted uh, citing headwinds of supply chain constraint, rising costs of components and transport. Um, but they do anticipate revenue being up in their coming quarter as well. So Juniper is mm. on a high. Uh, next, uh, we talk about Extreme Networks. They also reported financial results. This is for the second quarter of Extreme's 2022 fiscal year. The company had revenues of $280 million, up 16% year over year, and net income of $13.3 million. The company also said it saw 55% growth in SaaS subscriptions based on its Extreme Cloud platform. Yeah, so this is a similar story, not the same story, to Juniper and to many enterprise IT companies all reporting 5 to 10% revenue growth, uh, 1% to 2% profit growth or operating margin growth by a significant amount and consistently beating the analyst's expectations for quarters. So in this case, revenue was 280 mil for the quarter, up 16% year over year and over 8 million more than what the analysts expected or what they'd previously predicted. Now, this is really interesting because um, 
you know, we've talked, I haven't put in other financial results. Uh, the only one that didn't make it was F5. We'll talk about that in a minute. Most of the enterprise IT companies are actually doing very well. They're all reporting. So if people are moving to the cloud, it's not showing up in their financial results, Drew. Um, <laughs> because if you were moving to the cloud, in theory, you would be buying less and less of these vendors' mm-hmm. technologies because they would be less relevant to you. You'd be shifting off to other technologies and other products. But in this case, they're saying, um, I mentioned F5 there. Uh, F5 reported results. They did report revenue growth and also predict, uh, product sales growth, backlog growth, all that type of stuff. But they specifically said that they have a very significant erosion in supply chain availability of components, particularly the chipsets that are supporting chipsets in the networking portion of the systems business. Mm. This has resulted in them bringing down their forecast for sales quite dramatically in the large last quarter sequentially. So what it what we're seeing here, I think, is a really interesting situation. There are some technology companies who've been have uh, got strong supply chain relationships. They've either got relationships with companies like Broadcom, which is what Extreme Networks, the CEO of Extreme Networks, drive said that we have a strong relationship with Broadcom and we've been able to work with them to to get what we need. But uh, companies like F5 are definitely struggling. So if they haven't got good relationships or their supply chain people are not um, as skilled or maybe the software that they use isn't good, they may struggle. And anyway, F5 Networks is now down 14% because they're saying our supply chain is a problem. Well, not to cast dispersions on F5, but if I had crappy results, I would also blame supply chain. Um, And we can debate how much of that is actually a factor or not. Um, I think F5 is in a tough spot with its business model uh, and its business overall. And so supply chain could be a nice excuse, although I am sure they are also suffering supply chain issues. So, Yeah, it's variable. Like, you know, we thought it was going to be bad. Although what I did read this week is that there's now some messaging coming out saying that the supply chain problems with silicon chips is now predicted to last until 2026. Oof. Uh, I think companies will generally be able to manage it. Like they're, they're pre-ordering uh, when they get stock instead of sending it on the cheap boat from the factory to the shop, they're air, doing expedited air freight mm. to make sure it doesn't disappear or get lost. You know, <laughs> So vendors are definitely incurring a lot of costs in the supply chain that didn't have before. They're ordering stock ahead of time. They're going to end up with stock that doesn't sell right? So they're buying ASICs to put into a warehouse. Maybe they don't sell them all. Um, So we'll see. We'll see. But I think that you're going to see this patchiness where some companies are going to be deeply affected by supply chain. We know that certain Cisco products have been deeply affected, but others are not at all. So we'll just have to wait and see how it works out. But I, you know, the messaging that supply chain may not fix until 2026 um, resonates with me because there's just more and more demand. So even as they make more factories and more fabs, there's just more demand coming into the market for more chips and so on and so forth. So, right, and bringing a fab or a factory online is very difficult. That doesn't happen overnight, so that also adds to the problem. Yeah, there was a big article this week. Uh, Intel uh, worked with the Ohio government, which I believe is a state in America. Yes, it is. And they convinced them to get some land and they're going to build a factory there. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that Intel does, for example, is they may well build the big shed, but there's no guarantees that they'll actually put the equipment in it. So Intel has a number of locations in America where it actually has uh, potential locations to put factories, but not necessarily ever put any equipment into them, or they're not necessarily into production. So right. there, there is some caution there. Always. Uh, just one more note on Extreme, and Greg, you can too now because this is about sports ball. Uh, for all you Premier League fans, Extreme just inked a deal with Manchester United to provide Wi-Fi gear at the Old Trafford Football Stadium. I'm a Man U fan, so I was tickled by that. 
<laughs> Extreme does seem to have a a, a market in. They've, they've the got a lock world. on professional sports. Yeah, they really do. Yeah, in the stadium. So they've done a lot of work. Uh, they convinced the one of the American sports ball, one of the big American sports ball, the National codes. Football League. Oh, is that what it is? Yes. Now, to, uh, they got one into one stadium and then touted as a success, and then they all picked up all the NFL, and then they've gone on to pick on lots of other sports. And I think they've sort of carved a niche out for themselves with sports ball things saying we can cover stadiums like nobody else. Yep, so they really have. Yeah, yay yeah. for them. Yeah, well Pretty done. niche market <laughs> if you ask me, but all right. Go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> all right, wrapping up with our last story, the Register's reporting that the government of the United Kingdom is considering setting up a professional registry for cybersecurity professionals as a way to enforce, quote, competence and ethical requirements, end quote. This is super interesting. We've said before that uh, we've had different pieces where cybersecurity professionals or security professionals are sort of unregulated, and yet they have access to the most, you know, secretive information or access to the deepest information. They have (laughs) control of the IT security principles. They are root. They are root. They are, yeah, exactly. You know, to some extent, networking people are the same. Uh, the idea that you would actually have a register is an interesting one. Now, at the end of the day, when you think about this, if you think of an engineer like a quantity surveyor or a civil engineer or an electrical engineer, and they design things that go into everyday life, they must be registered with an appropriate body. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you register with that body and certify that you've met certain conditions and that you subscribe to a certain code of ethics and so forth, then you will get protected in certain ways, right? And the threat isn't that the membership of this super secret club is that you are whatever. It's more the fact that you might be kicked out of the club and then you can't get insurance. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like uh, doctors and lawyers, right? If right. you're a doctor or a lawyer and you do conduct a crime, you lose your right to practice. Right, right. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I guess I'm, you know, for more professionalization of the IT industry. I don't know if this is the right way to go about it. And I also feel like, so I read a little bit of the documentation. It sounds Mm. like what this really is about is that the UK government feels like there's a skill shortage. Businesses are complaining that they don't have a good way to Mm. determine, does someone I'm about to hire have the requisite skills? So they're looking for kind of a shortcut, like, okay, you went through this program. I feel more comfortable hiring you. Um, Yeah. Which is fine. But to my mind, the real problem is that most organizations, most businesses are being sold crappy software and crappy products, and the manufacturers of those crappy products suffer essentially no repercussions for making crappy products. So you're trying yeah. to professionalize the mechanics when it's the cars that are bad. I think this is the first step down that direction. So doctors, as an if they're a member of the you know the medical institution that certifies doctors uh, in any given country, if there's something that's going wrong, then that body can stand up and start to take steps. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have medical malpractice. You have people going to drugs companies and saying you can't sell this drug because it's, you know, killing people or making people sick or whatever. Sure. So in one sense, but on the other hand, I'm much more of a free marketer in the sense that, you know, do we really need this? Right. And on the other hand, there's so many security professionals which are objectionable humans <laughs> who run around doing stunt hacking and, you know, abusing people. It tends to attract the worst type of personalities. Um, and you know, in some, in some cases, especially, and security Twitter is a horror story. The people in security Twitter are just horrible. Some of them are are not great. Yeah. Yeah. And if we could professionalize them to some extent, um, this, that might be desirable. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely, you know, 
I think part of the issue is, again, looking through the document from the UK government is there's also an issue of a lack of skills gap. But again, I think there's mm. an issue here. That's about training. That's not about certification. And organizations mm. who want the people with those skills need to train them. So just invest in training. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, once you have a professional body, you get professional indemnity. So if you're a certified person, you could be right. issued with some sort of indemnity because you meet things. But I, I also wonder if the challenge here is that if you actually have a, a club, which is then only got limited membership, and then the goal becomes like, I want to hire one of the people that's a member of this club, um, then salaries can get out of whack. Right. So right. you end up with a very difficult situation where the price of labor becomes in relationship to their ability to be a member of a secret society like the IEEE. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's another thing this, this document says, you know, they want to encourage more young people to get into cybersecurity, but if you start throwing up, you know, gateways like this, then I don't know how that is encouraging folks. So I I feel like there's a a bunch of conflicting ideas here and I'm all for more professionalization and certification. I don't know if this is necessarily the right way. Yeah. I'm torn as you can probably hear. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much in the execution here, I think is the weakness. Yes. This could just go horribly wrong. Um, Yeah. 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 And again, the, the focus should be less on, I think, security professionals and more on the folks developing applications and, and hardware that, that need more scrutiny. That's my take. And yet, the <laughs> IT security industry is a clown show. That, that's part of it. Sometimes. Sometimes. As a general, very jazz and generalization. So yes. many different products, so many niches, they refuse to unify and come together to create. And it's just, yeah. Well, if you are in security or no folks in security, you have an opinion, let us know, packetpushers.net slash FU. That does wrap up the news portion of the show. Uh, stick around for our Tech Bytes conversation with Aviatrix. We're going to be talking about scaling up cloud security. That's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking network security at scale. That is, in a cloud environment, how can you build security capabilities and features into the network while also being able to keep up with security policies, operations, compliance, visibility, and so on. Our sponsor today is Aviatrix. They provide multi-cloud networking software for public clouds. Our guest is Brian Woodworth. He is product marketing manager at Aviatrix. Brian, welcome to the podcast. And before we jump into the security discussion, can you give us the elevator pitch on what Aviatrix does and how it does it? Sure. Yeah, thanks, Drew. So Aviatrix is a a really cool company. We're addressing networking and security at scale in a cool distributed SDN style way that is kind of unique in the industry. So we have a control plane, we have a data plane, we have a visibility plane, they all work in concert. And this ecosystem is uniform across all major clouds. So it's uniform for you in Azure, for GCP, in AWS, in OCI, and Alibaba. Each one of those clouds has their own proprietary networking. But what I mean is they might use TCP IP, but the way that they configure segments and route is all very proprietary and based on their own thing. They don't use normal protocols. How do you manage to stitch together those very different networks into one network? So we approach this from a cloud native perspective. And you're right. Each CSP has their own special ecosystem, their own special kind of secret sauce on how Mm. their networking and security stacks work. So instead of trying to just speak generic TCP IP to try to figure this out, the controller uses APIs to query each cloud fabric Mm -hmm. and understand and absorb all of the resource-based objects that the fabric uses to create security and networking elements and then provides these to the end user in a kind of seamless way. So for example, you could use Aviatrix as the uniform control plane and express intent to the controller and you see these networking objects as fundamentals in your palette. So if I want to say, 
there's a router. I want to route between these two networks. And over here is a bunch of subnets in AWS and I've got a bunch of subnets in Azure and I want to be able to route them. You then use the various primitives that the cloud providers have in their infrastructure and you set them up so that they look like one network, but they're actually using the native cloud functions that exist. That's exactly right. So we have different ways to approach, you know, fabric. One is that if you're not wanting to do BGP, uh, you know, everywhere in your mesh, that's fine. We can call through the control plane and APIs, the native routing tables and routing constructs of the cloud and manipulate them to get your end-to-end outcome so that you don't have to fiddle with these differences in static routing in these cloud stacks. The controller knows it natively mm-hmm. and will just take your input and say, oh, okay, this customer wants these two segments to be co-joined, these two segments to route. I'm going to align that up using each proprietary uh, cloud routing stack. and makes it invisible and seamless to the user. But we're also talking about network security here. The topic that we wanted to talk about was how Aviatrix does network security at scale. That would imply that you are putting security functions in there, like network functions somewhere in the network, firewalls, IDSs. And that might not mean that you're using native functions because if I was using Cloud A's security features and Cloud B's, I might not be able to reconcile them. Are you actually instantiating your own instances as well? We are gateway-based. And so we have transit gateways and spoke gateways. You can build these these transit architectures based on hub and spoke topologies and they're highly available and and so forth. The security engine is in each gateway, Mm -hmm. but these gateways are pervasive and uniform across your cloud deployment so that the security stack is always right there, right next to your application in the spoke. And the muscle of the security engine is in the gateway, which are very fast. There's a lot of high speeds and feeds there. They can do things at line rate. And in these gateways, we've baked in five tuple stateful behavior, FQD infiltering, and a threat intelligence engine that we call a threat guard. And then the visibility part of that is called threat IQ. So then you're using a combination of native functions from the clouds to give you a certain number of network primitives. But where you need to add particular features on top of that, you'll start to use the gateway-based functions and instantiate functionality in the network. So if I wanted to have an IPsec VPN, it would terminate on one of the gateways. That's right. And our gateways have different roles. So typically you would you would want to terminate that in the transit gateway and then propagate all of your on-prem routes throughout your mesh. As you have designed, you can say this kind of route from this branch needs to stop here, start mm-hmm. here. You know, So segmentation is also a, a critical piece. But now the spoke gateways can also uh, connect to other IPsec endpoints. And we have our own device that's a pizza box. It's a one-new device. It's called Cloud In. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you want Aviatrix to be even closer to your edge and extend that cloud awareness out, you can you can do that. Uh, we use our own secret sauce to get very fast speeds and feeds. Uh, so we could basically encrypt these cloud connectivity platforms like ExpressRoute, DirectConnect, right. Cloud yeah. Interconnect at, at line rate. Hmm. Um, it's pretty hmm. impressive. Because if you use the cloud-based VPNs, you can usually max it out at a gig or one and a half gigabits per second. Which That's precisely correct. 1.25 yeah. gigabit per tunnel. Yeah. It varies between providers, but if you're doing SD-WAN, but you also offer an edge connectivity like an SD-WAN type service to connect into clouds. But that's not what I wanted to talk about. I guess what we wanted to talk about was how you deliver this intelligence into the network so that I'm doing security at scale using those gateways. What are the key features around that that I should be aware of? So first you need to take a distributed systems approach, right? So our founders, Steve and JJ, were from Nasira, so they understand that capability and that platform very well. You know, they helped to pioneer it. So they brought all that intelligence and motion over to Aviatrix. So we have a smart controller. We have 
a distributed scalable data plane that's all muscle, no brain, the controller's the brain. And then we have a, a killer visibility engine called Copilot. And then we have coordination between all these three things. Mm -hmm. So that allows you to create a security policy as a factor of intent programmatically through, through Terraform or point click or through shell or whatever, and then have that automatically ripple end to end throughout this distributed system. And then of course you have a scale engine. If you need to shrink it or, or grow it, you express intent to the controller and will shrink and grow. The security should be baked into the network. The mantra we like mm -hmm. to say is network security belongs in the network. So I've got a SDN controller. I've got a graphical interface, which brings all of this together. And that's Aviatrix's product. And it uses a combination of instantiating gateways in the cloud functionality, multi-tenant gateways, I assume, that shares the infrastructure between your different customers. And then I'm able to start putting firewall policy in there, VPN policy, remote access policy, zero trust type stuff as well. All correct, except one point, it's it's not multi-tenant. That's one mm. of the key differences between Aviatrix and, right. and just CSP native stacks. You know, we're building an overlay specifically for a single customer, a single business, a single enterprise. So they have the assurance that all that capability, visibility is totally laser focused on their line of business and they don't okay. have to share cores or anything. So I wanted to ask, when we talk about public cloud security, lots of the security vendors have made virtual instances of their firewalls and I can spin that up in you know, a VPC or a transit gateway or whatever and get some security functionality. Is that what you're doing or are you running your own sort of native security controls? Yeah, I mean, we're open source based, we're Linux based, um, which allows us to scale very quickly and add new features very quickly and easily. So it's it's not super esoteric stuff, but we do have our own stateful security engine and FQD engine and threat intelligence engine and so forth. That's, you know, our own product. But these firewall ecosystems, remember, they're L2 based and they don't snap to the way cloud networking works in the way we do because in cloud, SDN is all L3. Your security mm -hmm. boundaries are L3. L2 is not a good tool to use as a scale engine or an availability engine in cloud. Right, and I just wanted to clarify that I'm not like spinning up some third-party security device within yours. I'm using your native tooling for my security features. Ah, I see. Yeah, no, let's talk about that. So you could have it kind of either way. We have a product that's part of our portfolio called FireNet, which allows for integration into our security engine with you know, the main security vendors that we see prospering in cloud today. So Palo Alto, Checkpoint, uh -huh. Fortinet, F5. And this is very helpful to enterprise because there's a, a better together motion there where obviously our platform and capability will grow. We have native threat intelligence today, but that's not the full security story. And we all know that. So you need more advanced IDS, IPS, or advanced app functionality and deeper inspection, crack the packet. So of course you're going to want to bring in, you know, your checkpoint, your FortiGate, whatever for that. Mm -hmm. So FireNet helps manage and operationalize uh, those firewalls at, at scale for you because scaling firewalls in cloud is a very difficult exercise. It can be. And FireNet is the way that we basically have a single source of truth for control plane there. So, you know, you can build more programmatically. You can um, deploy them instantly and through your end-to-end uh, -end network topology. It's a, it's a cool product. Okay, so if I've already made some kind of existing investment in virtualized instances of a third-party firewall, I can still continue to use that if I'm also getting this overlay from Aviatrix. 100%, yep. Okay, mm. good. Okay, so you're protecting my investment, essentially. Absolutely. And I think the key thing here is that SDN, that software orchestration of all the elements, gives you the operational control of your network security. The big thing that Aviatrix pushes is this visibility and control of the network infrastructure. And the use of software means you can actually see things. And more importantly, 
when you're working with multi-vendor networks, which effectively is what a multi-cloud strategy is, getting visibility in a single network across all of these diverse technology stacks is actually a key security issue, I feel. Yeah, no, you hit the, the nail right on the head. So there's two aspects there. I'll try to be concise about both. Starting first with visibility, it's nice to have a uniform visibility engine. We call it Copilot, big forensic analytical engine. We use NetFlow in, in quasi real time to aggregate all of the network and security activity that's happening in your entire mesh and put it at your fingertips. Hmm. And it's nice to have that in a uniform way because if you're a multi-cloud customer or even a big cloud customer trying to straddle hybridly on-prem to cloud, you're going to be dealing with multiple tool sets. And it's really hard to have your security and IT teams master multiple tool sets and trying Mm. to have them integrated, right? That's important. The other part of that story I wanted to tell is even just using native security stacks like built-in security groups and network security groups and the visibility you get off those is not uniform, right? So each one has its own kind of output. And so you see a lot of security companies now settling on, hey, can I get this to Splunk? Can I get this to ArcSight? Can I get this to Sumo Logic and Datadog? And we support a lot of those same vendors as well. So again, we're going to protect the existing investment there. But what's nice is that we can send and export all this data to Splunk. We have a story there, but we're still going to get all that real-time visibility in Copilot. So we measure the delta of this alerting in, in seconds, as opposed to some CSPs where it takes two to five minutes for alerts to show up on your dashboard because mm. they're big multi-tenant systems. And, you know, you kind of have to get your data in a big queue. So when you're talking about visibility, you're talking because you're collecting flow records. I can see things like communications between hosts. I can see, get some application information, and I can also get a sense of my whole network topology. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we don't have time to dive into Copilot. There's a lot of good stuff on YouTube. If you know want to check it out, there's a lot of cool eye candy there. But it's organized on, you know, several key aspects, troubleshooting flow data, security, control, all these things. But it's good because... It's very fast. And let's take the Threat IQ, for example. So what happens is the co-pilot is constantly checking this threat intel database. It's very lively. We're updating it every minute to make sure that the intelligence in there is good is because we know IP identity shifts a lot in today's landscape. So if we see anywhere through any gateway throughout your topology, a malicious actor inbound or outbound acting upon your host, and we see each host in each VPC because, again, we're calling these APIs. We know who's who in the zoo. So we're like, oh, this host, this VPC, this region, this cloud, boom. We're going to know that right away. You're going to get alert on your dashboard right away. In our big global landscape, you're going to see that red flashing dot right away. And you're going to be able to react to it very swiftly. We even have an auto remediation capability to where if you want our co-pilot system to call that control plane and say, shut that flow down right away and then alert me after the fact, that's going to happen. Because as your network scales and becomes disparate and non-uniform, having that kind of agility is a, a big challenge. So if I've got, you know, some host out on the internet that's trying to do something malicious to a resource I've got in the cloud, a a crypto miner, a botnet or something, this threat analysis engine can tell me that host should not be on your network and then I can do something about it. That's right. Or you could tell Copilot and and the controller just do something about it proactively and based on just that tuple, not just don't shut down the whole host and cause an outage, but this tuple, this stateful Mm -hmm. connection that's malicious Mm -hmm. or almost certainly malicious. Don't just alert me, just go ahead and kill it. Yes, absolutely. 
All right. Well, that does wrap up our time. Brian, thanks for joining us. If folks want to get more information, where should they go? So aviatrix.com is our main landing page. And there's a lot of cool uh, pages that hang off that. It's easy to navigate. I'd like to think it's a, it's a good website for landing sites. So there's going to be content part of that. There's going to be a training part of that, our ACE program. And the, up to February, the first associate part is free. There's a coupon code. So if you just want to spend you know a day and learn a little bit more about Aviatrix to get familiar with the multi-cloud scene in general, that's that's a great unit to take. And of course, there's a ton on YouTube. And you know our content site will link to that. But if you just Google Aviatrix or search for that in YouTube, you're going to get a bunch of cool stuff. Fantastic. That's aviatrix.com and that's aviatrix with an X at the end, T-R-I-X. So go check it out. Thanks, Brian, for being with us. And thanks to Aviatrix for being a sponsor. And most importantly, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, you can find many more like it all for free, along with our community blog. That's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers, find us on LinkedIn, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.